Any of you ever had to do a root cause analysis? Not a root canal. I know that's <laughs> prevalent among us. You know what a root cause analysis is? If you've in insurance or uh, a lot of other industries have to do it. In construction, we have to do them. Uh, if there's an accident uh, or a major, um, a major mistake somehow in, in the construction, um, we have to get to the bottom of it. And that's what root cause analysis is, is we're going to get to the bottom of what caused the situation. How can we understand it? What were the factors? Um, what were the important factors? What are the not so important factors? And, and a lot of times it's, it's so that we can make changes. Um, a lot of times we, we have opportunities to um, make corrections that will save us money down the road and make policy changes as well in the midst of the company. So I feel like like this morning, John wants to, in these last verses of chapter 4, is he wants to do sort of a root cause analysis. He wants to get some, some, a bunch of information packed into a few verses and then help us to see what his primary focus is in the midst of why and how we love. So we have two main points, a summary point, which would be the root cause, and then he does a case study for us, which will help us to better understand our passage. Point number one, in verse 17, John says, by this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. By this, love is perfected with us. By what? Well, let's look at the second half of the verse right above it. Just like John has been doing over and over again in this letter, he uses by this to say, because of what we just read, because of what I just wrote. The second half of verse 16 says that God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Okay? But what does it mean to abide, John? What do, what, do you, what do you pack it into those words? Well, that's found in the first half of verse 16. John uses the word so. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. Any of y'all recall your Saturday morning cartoons? Conjunction, junction, what's your function? Connecting words and phrases, something, 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 something. Anyway, I won't go there all the way. Um, so we would get these commercials, which were actually grammar lessons, or sometimes it was the Declaration of Independence, or just information that uh, kind of public service announcements that were put into cartoons and put in the midst of real cartoons to give us kids some more information about, so we'd receive those lessons. Well, conjunctions are, are a great part of language and the way that they connect things or separate things. John uses the word so as a conjunction. So he says, so we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. In other words, John is packing all of verses 7 through 15 into that word so. So let's unpack it briefly. John is saying, because love is from God and it is evidence that we've been born again and that we know God. 
It's instructing us. Because in eternity past, the Father loved the Son and the Son loved the Father. There's always been an other orientation to the love of God. All the, manifest, all the manifestations of the love of God emerge out of this deeper, more foundational reality. Love is bound up in the very nature of God. Verse 8. Therefore, God is love. And because of the incarnation, verse 9, and because Christ came and was the Savior of the world, verse 10, because of those extravagant loves, we need to love one another and be physical examples of God's love to the world, verses 11 and 12. And because all this is accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit, verse 13, and because we can't keep this to ourselves, we testify that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And our testifying is a sign that God abides in us and we abide in Him. So this is what we know. This is what love is and what it means to abide. Because we abide and we remain in the love of God. And God abides and remains in us. And this is the complete, perfect love that John mentions in verse 17 when he says, By this is love perfected with us. With us? Isn't that a different way of saying that phrase? Normally you would say, possibly by this, love is perfected in us. Why would John say, with us? I think this is an easy uh, illustration for all of us to understand. Why is it different? Let's, Let's just say it this way. If I was to sit down and Pastor Peter was to come up here and take my notes and read through them as I have them, why would that be different for all of you than if Nick or I were up here. <laughs> He'd be making up his go as long, so we know that's true. You know why it's different? Because year after year, he has been with us. Not just here. He's with us in our joys. He's with us in our sorrows. He's been with us in the hospital. He's been with us at the funeral home. He has been with us. And God's love is perfected because Christ did the same thing. He was with and is with us. Right? So that perfecting love is intimate love. It's love that that carries weight. It's one thing to teach. It's another thing to be with the people. And that's the important focus that John is saying, that we need to love. The second part of verse 17 says that so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in the world. Confidence for the day of judgment. John wants to communicate that we have assurance. And this is the effect 
of the completed perfect love in our lives. His love is complete and perfect. Ours is growing into that perfection. You see the difference? He has perfected his love. And when he saves us, that is a completed action. In that moment, you are completely loved. Then for the rest of your life, you grow into that reality that you are completely loved. And that looks all kinds of ways and all kinds of people. And it grows differently for all of us. But there's some common threads amongst that. So we will never be completed on this side of heaven, but we will always have hope of that completion continuing day after day to fill us with fresh faith and hope in his work amongst us. We are so assured of our standing with God in Christ because of his Holy Spirit that affects every aspect of our lives. It becomes our primary ambition. We love because he first loved us. We want, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to obey Christ and glorify God. We have, as Keith and and Aaron shared on Dinner Discipleship on Thursday, we have the aroma of the Trinity oozing out of us. We have the aroma of love oozing out of us. So that we will be As he is, he is Jesus, and we are going to be as he is. What does John mean? John means that we are in Christ. And he said in John 17, uh, five particular things that, that I want to highlight from John 17, that Jesus prayed that include us in those prayers of how we are, how we will be in this world. The first one's found in verse 3. He says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In other words, give them new minds. Let them know you like I know you intimately. Number two, verse 13, he says, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Let them overflow with joy. Joy is is another one of the aromas of our lives. Verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Father, make them holy. Grow them in holiness. Number four, verse 29. I'm sorry, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Knit them together. Let them be unified. This unity is going to testify to the world 
of my reality. That Jesus is the Son of God sent to be the Savior of the world. Number five, verse 24, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. In other words, Father, bring them home. Let heaven be in their hearts always, but let it be a reality one day. And that's our hope. That's our drawing. Point number two. There is no fear, verse 18 says in 1 John 4, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. There is no fear in love. For perfect love casts out fear. So because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, we know that we are always loved by God. And that simple truth shatters our pride and our fears. And it, it, it enables us that when fear does arise in our heart, that we can pray and we can remind ourselves that we are loved perfectly by God. And he is working in us for his glory. And so we can set aside those fears, not, not necessarily the reality of the situation, but we set aside the leash that it has on us. We take the fear and we put it into perspective. I am perfectly loved and God is working perfectly in me. John speaks not of the doing away of, of all of our ramifications of our sin, but he speaks, speaks specifically of punishment in this verse. And he says that, that punishment has to do with fear, and fear has to do with punishment. They're inextricably linked because the one who has fear is nervous about his eternal state. He's nervous about will his sins be counted against him. But because of Christ's sacrifice, that nervousness, that, that fear is gone. And we are able to walk in perfect love because fear has to do with punishment. John is speaking directly to our acceptance before God and our inner peace. So does this confidence mean that we can do whatever we want to after we're saved? Paul would scream at you, may it never be. That's one of his strongest words that he uses, right? And he goes in, in chapter 5 of Romans and he says, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. Yeah. Any of you like math? Come on, Greg, raise your hand. I know you like math. This is a mathematical equation. Okay? The words in Greek are, are mathematical. Where sin abounds says that you are able to write down or count or however you want to do it, every one of your sins. That's possible for you to remember it. There is an actual number of sins that you will commit. Right? Let's say you got, you got there, and my number will be closer to Mount Everest. All right? Um, so where sin abounds, 
where sin has been counted up, grace does much more. And the word he uses here for much more means compare that mountain to the universe. How big's the mountain now? Does the universe stop growing? It doesn't. Because grace does much more abound. So we, we have then Paul says, okay, I, I hear somebody out there saying, I'm just going to keep on sinning. <laughs> I like it. I enjoy it. I'm just going for it. And he's saying, may it never be. Do you not know? Do you not understand that by your continuing to want, desire, and go after that sin, you're proving that you don't have the love of Christ in you. And so he goes into, into, uh, into chapter 6 of Romans, and he declares that we're either slaves of sin or slaves of righteousness. And he understands, wait a minute, someone might be confused there. And he says, okay, now we're going to sin. And, and in chapter 7, he would say you know, that I find these things working in me, and they're overwhelming me. And he comes back to chapter 8, and he says... Therefore, there is no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And he would go on to give more assurances. So Paul would tell us, may it never be that you would continue in sin so grace would abound. So, does this mean that there is no fear of discipline? Because we have no fear of punishment? Parents, would you like to answer this one for me? Of course not. That's silly. You know, the love that we have, the love that John has been describing, is defined by the gospel. God dealt with our sins at the cross. Now, as he brings us into the family, he deals with our hearts our attitudes, right? We were discussing uh, last week's um, catechism statement on the difference between justification and sanctification on the ride over here this morning um, for Maggie. And we were talking that justification deals with her sins being set aside at the cross. Sanctification deals with her growing up into that perfect state. And that it'll be an ongoing process for the rest of of her life. So verse 19 gives us our summary statement. Here's the point that John packs everything into. And he says, we love because he first loved us. For a lot of us, this is a nice truth. We like to put it on a mug or a, a hanging on the wall. But this is also a battleground. For we, like most modern people, base our value on outside circumstances. Our ability to love is based on other people's valuation of us, or at least our opinion of how we think they evaluate us. And this is the reason we go so desperately after knowledge and beauty, success, justice, or power. And John is teaching us like a loving father would, that we are loved just as we are. The inner turmoil is over. You are now able to live from the inside out. The change that's happened in you 
will affect your outside. You have a foundation. You have an established, unshakable ground to stand. And no matter what other people think, feel about you, even though a lot of that might be right, we're still able to stand the confidence that God loved us and gave his son for us. And when you're in Christ, you're perfectly loved, accepted, and valued just as the Father love, accepts, and values Christ. Just as the Father loves, accepts, and values Christ. That's who you are. Become who you are. We love because he first loved us. All right, now our case study. Here's a hypothetical situation. Okay, John throws it out there for us. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not know love. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. So of all the issues I could have brought up this morning that discuss hypocritical, hypocritical, I wrote hypocritical, I don't know why, but hypocritical love, we're going to limit ourselves to just one. The issue of unforgiveness. So when I read verse 20 this week and I was reading and studying through the passage, my mind almost instantly went to Matthew 18 and the parable of the wicked servant. So let's turn over there to Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35. Read the passage, and then we'll, we'll allow our case study to be formulated for us. Matthew 18, verse 21 says, Then Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him, forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison till he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. 
Should you have not had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Why does Jesus use this parable? Jesus sees, well, Jesus has Peter come up to him. Jesus has been teaching some, some very hard things, some very challenging things on the, the way to deal with sin and how to deal with temptation and sin and what to do with people in the church as they continue in sin. And Peter's like, whoa, this is some hard stuff. This is serious. Okay, God. Okay, Jesus. And Peter puts on his best pharisaical robe and he's going to Jesus. All right, Jesus, how many times should I have to forgive my brother? Seven times? Peter thinks he's established something here. Peter's like, I'm, I'm going to get a pat on the back. I'm going to get a gold star for this one. Jesus, once again, just lovingly says, no, Peter, 70 times seven. But it's bigger than that. Because Jesus' point is, your forgiveness is unlimited. It's not seven times. It's not seven times a day. It's your heart is inclined towards forgiveness because you have been forgiven so much. You understand how you stand before God, perfected, accepted, and loved. And from that, you're able to forgive those who, who have sinned against you. So how often do we forgive each other's sin? When someone comes to you and and asks for forgiveness, you need to be ready and willing to extend it. You need to have a, a pliability in your life. You need to be moldable by the Holy Spirit that you hear their request through the, through the power of the cross. And that that heart that you have will overwhelm and draw them. But I know and we know that there are very difficult situations. And life sometimes can hit us very, very hard. How should we handle these difficult situations where it is most difficult to forgive? First thing you do is you believe by faith that God sent Jesus, his son, to be the savior of the world. Second thing you do, you have faith in his promises. In other words, you hold them so close to your heart that you wring every ounce of promise, every ounce of security out of those promises and let them cover you by faith. And then number three, you leave room in your life for God to be God. You leave room for God to change you, and mold you. Look, I, I, we are not going to sit here and, and, and say, you know, I don't want anyone to hear me just say that you know we're always just gonna gonna forgive, gonna forgive, forgive. Yes, we are, by the power of the cross. 
But there are situations, there are circumstances of abuse, and I am not saying that those should be covered up in any way. You know, we have been given, um, given the purpose of forgiveness as loving sacrificially and, and demonstrating our indebtedness to God's love. And, and we seek the greatest good of the other individual in forgiving them. But we don't relinquish the consequences of their sin. They have made choices. And those choices need to be given to the, the authorities that that's responsible for. So if you have a situation like that in your life, I encourage you. Uh, if there's a situation of unforgiveness, I would, I would plead with you. Get some time with one of, the, one of the elders or a mature Christian that you trust, know, and, and sit down with them. Explain the situation. Explain the difficulty that you're having and allow them to prayerfully counsel you. Allow them to give you godly counsel. So the last question for the case study is that do you understand your indebtedness to the Father? How can you tell if you're starting down the path of unforgiveness? Look at how you view your own sin. You begin to see your sin as smaller and, and you lose sight of all that God has forgiven you in Christ. And the, others, the sins of others they become greater. You sinned against me. And you want to hold them to a standard of punishment as the wicked servant held the, his debtor to him. And yet he had been forgiven so much. You understand, you want, I'm sorry, read my notes, don't explain them. Please understand that you are the worst sinner that you know. There may be others around you whose sin can be seen out in the open and is easier to sin, easier to see than yours, thereby yours are easier to hide. But we need to be receiving the heart of God and be ready to forgive. For often God uses our willingness to forgive to draw attention to the cross. The opportunity we have in someone sinning against us may be the only opportunity that person has to see the cross. And that's not easy to say. It's not easy to do. But we have been given power of the cross and we cannot hold onto the cross and unforgiveness at the same time. For holding on the cross requires two hands. So does unforgiveness. It can't be divided. Same illustration Christ would use later for money. You can't serve God and money. Because you've got to hold both of them with Two hands. So pray and seek godly counsel. Submit your heart to God and, and, and trust God. Believe Him for His promises. Have faith in them that He can change you. The circumstances are, are so difficult, but God wants to walk with you, right? Remember the with? He's with us.
in this. If your love for God allows you to hate your brother or sister, then your love for God is a lie. And that's directly from John. We cannot hate them and say we love God. Then John concludes in verse 21 and says, This commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Do you remember one of the primary contexts where Jesus gave us this new commandment to love our brothers? It comes in John 13. What else happens in John 13? Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And, and warns them as well. One of them will betray. And Judas leaves. And Jesus takes off his robe. Lays it aside. And begins to wash their feet. And then he says. I have served you. You go do likewise. Let's pray. Father, thank you for for your amazing love of us, God. Who are we that you should consider us? Who are we that you should send your son into this mess of a world that we made that you should perfect us by selecting us out of the mess giving us a new heart and a new life and a new hope. God, we love you and we want to love you more. God, we know that there are hurting people around us, amongst us. Help us, Lord God. Help us to to walk in reconciliation, be reconcilers. Let us be peacemakers encouraging your love to abound amongst us so that we can love one another and love you more. We trust you. We praise you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. All right, thank you. So next week, we will be doing uh, the gathering breakfast at 8.30 and then hopefully be able to do a video call um, for our missions prayer. Uh, our once-a-month missions prayer here, and we're hopeful that um, Ben and Jen can try to join with us uh, at that time. So we'll see if the Internet allows it. If not, we'll pray together um, for them, for missions. And then the following week, um, the man is back, and he will take us through Chapter 5. So thank you.